welcome back to the U.S. Naval History Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about the remarkable story of USS Quail following the fall of Corregidor during World War II. This is one of those amazing stories that somehow became commonplace in the vast Pacific theater of World War II. But this one in particular I think you'll find interesting. It is the story of 18 men in a 36-foot boat escaping at the last possible moment from the Japanese assault on the Philippines and then sailing with essentially no equipment all the way down to Australia and all of the trials and tribulations that they went through in the process. And with me to discuss the journey of the quail is the perfect guest, Tim Deal, who edited a republished version of the book South from Corregidor, which tells the story of those 18 men who escaped from Corregidor and sailed all the way to Australia. Tim is the son of two World War II naval veterans and followed in their footsteps with four years on the Navy and 18 more in the Coast Guard and republished South from Corregidor along with his brother. Welcome, Tim. Hey, thank you, Chase, very much for having me. So the first thing I want to ask is, can you just give us a background on the actual journey? Pearl Harbor happens, and throughout the entire Pacific, everyone in the Navy gets a, a message, we are at war, right? And at this point, pretty much everyone in the Navy knew that it was coming. So this wasn't entirely unexpected. It was just the actual when. So where is the quail? Where are the various characters in our story? What are they doing? And what is the immediate aftermath and actions? So everybody is very familiar with December 7th, uh, 1941, when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. But what a lot of people do not know is 10 hours later, the Philippines were attacked on December 8th. And what's confusing about is the international datelines there. But 10 hours after Pearl Harbor attack was attacked, Philippines were attacked. And that's when the quail crew and all the other, both the Army and Marines in the Philippines went on high alert. And so now I'm going to interject. This is the editing process. And I'm going to splice in some audio from Lyle Burser, who was the youngest member of the Escaping Quails crew, with some of his memories, as I will throughout this podcast. And all of this is originally taken from the Witness to War Foundation, which is a absolutely amazing foundation that preserves the oral histories of combat veterans. And you can go visit them at witnesstowar.org. This is Lyle Burser's memories of the attack on the Cavite shipyards. 10 hours after Pearl Harbor. And while we were in the Navy Yard on December the 8th, along come the Japanese bombers and wiped the Navy Yard out. We were tied up there. And uh, it was a struggle to get out of there because we had no engines. Our engines were all apart. They had bombed Pearl Harbor the day before, you know. Mm -hmm. And the next day we got it. They w completely wiped out the whole Navy Yard at Cavite. Philippine Islands. We kind of knew the war was coming all along. We were down in the southern Philippines and we watched the Japanese operate down there in the China Sea. You know, it wasn't a great big surprise. Of course, when we got the news on Pearl Harbor, that was like midnight on December the 7th. The next day, those high-level bombers came over and wiped us out. Some of the guys that were engineers on the ship got a hold of the parts for the engines and put it together, and in a couple of days, we, we had our own ship back. We never left Manila Bay. We were confined to Manila Bay. The reason we were confined was we weren't a fast ship. We were about a 12-knot ship. You know, you can't outrun a 
20, 20 knot destroyer with a 12 knot ship. Well, at the same time they landed, the Japanese landed their armies on uh, at Lengayan Gulf, which was the far side of the island of Luzon where Manila is. And they came right over land and I think it was uh, Christmas of 1941, they declared Manila an open city and the Japs came right over and took over. So we had to move out to the islands at the mouth of Manila Bay and uh, we operated out there. We were in constant combat from December the 8th till we landed in Australia. We had an enemy that we had to look out for all the time, the Japanese. And then the Japanese begin their attack on the Philippines, but it actually takes, you know, a number of months to roll up the Philippines. And eventually the Japanese army invades the Philippines, start rolling it back, rolling it back, rolling it back. And Corregidor itself, you know, it's been called the Gibraltar of the East, uh, big island fortress, lots of tunnels right at the mouth of Manila Bay. And the quail then, she's a, a pretty vital part of the defense of Corregidor. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, you have to really admire the bravery of the U.S. and Filipino troops in the Philippines. Uh, they did fight for about six months. They tried to hold the Japanese back, but they, just, they couldn't do it because no help was coming from the United States. So what the quail did, it helped with fire support missions, resupply mission, and minesweeping operations up to the very end. Here's Lyle Bursar again. We were encountering aircraft all the time. They'd come over, and every morning they had a reconnaissance airplane come over, and they'd, he'd look over the bay and look over the ships, and then along would come the, the bombers and the fighters behind him. So we were in constant, a constant battle for six months, from December the 8th to May the 6th. We were under attack every day. It was a pretty strenuous six months there. In the last couple of months or a month and a half, we had to come off the ship during the day and we were in those Melinda tunnels, into the Corregidor tunnels. Okay, and so we have uh, the fall of Corregidor. What becomes of the quail? What becomes of the crew then? So all forces in the Philippines surrendered uh, on May 6, 1942. And the Japanese attacked... Um, that at midnight or so between May 5th and May 6th, and a third of the quail crew was on the boat, and the other two-thirds were on Corregidor Island in the tunnels when that happened. And that's why only some of the sailors could escape. Let me tell you about living in the tunnels in Corregidor. That was the worst damn life you could imagine. The tunnels were under a mountain, and there were there was the main tunnel, which was Malinta Tunnel, then there were laterals. Well, our lateral, the quail's lateral, was the first lateral in Melinta Tunnel. And our our space was on top of uh, canned goods. There was mountains of canned goods, you know, for, for uh, emergencies like the war. We slept on top of these damn crates of canned goods. When you got into the, the mouth of the tunnel, you know, it was, the air was so stale that it just 
major ill. And to spend the night in there was hell. A couple of the sailors from the quail went and got the silver star for scuttling the quail sort of at the last moment. And the quail is scuttled. And, and then we have uh, the captain of the ship, which was Lieutenant Commander Morrill, who then sort of came up with this plan. He's like, you know, we don't want to surrender effectively and ask for volunteers who wants to come with me and gathers 17 men. And they basically get on this small little diesel launch, 36 feet, and they have relatively minimal navigation equipment. The sextant is gone. They have you know, these large area charts, but no, no detailed navigational charts. And they say, hey, you know what? We're, we're going south. And, and this is sort of the meat of the quail story, where it's south from Corregidor, going south until you hit friendly land. And the next bit of friendly land is Australia, although no one knew that because they had no radio. They had no news. Maybe Australia got conquered by the Japanese for all they knew. Yeah, well, let's start with, let's go back to May 6th. So that's going to be the day that uh, around noontime that General Wainwright surrendered all forces. And just before noon, Morrill was told, you have to scuttle the quail. It's the last remaining vessel, really. So he took five of his men, and they went out to the quail under, they were getting straight by Japanese fighters. But they get out there, and they're successfully able to uh, scuttle the quail. Well, on the way back to a small island called Caballo, uh, moral, they call him the skipper. So you may hear me refer to him as a skipper. They decide we're not going to surrender. And they hit on this, uh, this tug ranger. It had been damaged and it was sitting there and they hit on there all day with the plan to escape that night. So what they did was when nighttime came, they went over, there were 24 quail sailors that the skipper could get a hold of and say, Hey, do you want to escape and head South? He'd been thinking about it for a long time. So he was not going to ever be taken prisoner. He thought about this escape. And out of the 24, 18, including the skipper, uh, ended up going on the actual trip down to Australia. Six became prisoner of war. And to my best guess, three of those died prisoner of war. The ones that did not escape when offered to do so. Night before the surrender, there were 24 of us that went from the ship onto the island of Caballo, which was right next to Corregidor. Only 18 of us decided we wanted to take the chance on escaping. And the feeling, how in the hell am I going to, how am I going to get through this whole thing? You know, if you're captured, we knew what the Japs were doing to our people. So we knew all about Bataan. We knew what was coming. There's no question about it. We knew when he surrendered the islands that we were prisoners of war. We knew that. We did not accept that. The 18 of us didn't accept that. We got in that boat and left. And the skipper warned him, if we get caught, we're gonna be, you know, be considered prisoners of war escaping, we will be shot. So I, I only mentioned that because it took a lot of guts to do this escape. And so after the first night, they hid out in a cove for a night trying to keep, the Japanese had a lot of destroyers moving up and down and they need to hide out for a day before they could keep on their journey. So they traveled mainly at night in the early part of their escape. One thing I didn't mention was that this book was written by Lieutenant Commander Morrill, who eventually went on to become a rear admiral, so he does survive, obviously. And so he he wrote this, and it was published during World War II, and so it's, you know, sort of recognizes the amazing story, even amid the war. And there's one passage that I wanted to read, which I thought was interesting. <clears throat> one of the uh, sailors asked him, you know, Captain, if Corregidor surrenders, will we have to surrender too? Answer, hell no. 
if we've still got the ship, we'll steam out of here until we run out of oil, and then we'll take to the hills. The final answer is the boats. Since we haven't got enough oil to get anywhere, the Commandant will probably want to ship the scuttle to keep it from falling into Japanese hands. From now on, no matter what else you do, keep the boats full of diesel oil and supplies. All the boats. We'll need them all and more too if we're going to get all hands out. And another thing, if we get sent ashore, don't get lost. Stick close. And if you are sent on outpost duty, leave word where I can find you. Corregidor's a big place, and there are about 13,000 men over there. This question and answer game was prophetic. And it was, because ultimately he was able to get you know, a good portion of those sailors out. And had that early resolve not to surrender. Uh, no, you're absolutely right. He was really an amazing leader, uh, Moral was. But the other thing about the book that you just mentioned, I just want to remind uh, listeners, is it, he wrote that book between probably September of 1942 and December of 42. So just you're talking just months after the successfully landing in Australia. So you read it, at least to me, Chase, I don't know how you feel. I feel like I'm the 19th escapee. <laughs> it's really, it's really gritty. You know, he's not looking back in time. No historians writing it. He's writing it right then and there. Right. And there's a, you know, a couple of times when he's writing where he's sort of talking about things that with a little bit of historical knowledge, you know, aren't a hundred percent right, but it's sort of the fog of war. He's writing it without that ability to look back when communications are limited. And uh, it's really interesting because it is very much a mid-war book where looking back, you're like, oh, you know, that didn't turn out the way that he predicted. Um, and now we know a lot more 80 some years later. Yeah, no, no, absolutely right. And, you know, it's pretty rare. I don't think there's a lot of books written during the war itself by combatants. This is pretty, pretty rare product that way. And I think it's a great glimpse in the history, like you say, the fog of war at that time. And so this 36-foot boat full of 18 men, and they've loaded up with weapons. They have all the diesel oil that they can carry to try and bring them. And they start heading roughly south through the Philippines. And they start stopping every once in a while, and they get help, right? Yeah, without the Filipinos, this escape would never happen. And they risked everything. You know, if the Japanese caught you helping an American escapee, you were dead. And you'd probably be tortured before you were killed. So... You know, you look back and, and you think about their escape and all they did, but it was the Filipinos that really made that escape happen, especially in the early days before they could leave the Philippines. And it was, you know, partially a product of the relatively benign American occupation in the previous 40 to 50 years, and then the immediately brutal Japanese occupation thereafter, which almost enabled the escape of the quail sailors because, you know, pretty much everywhere they went, there were people willing to give them food and give them hospitality and what little diesel they had so that they could make it to the next stop, to the next stop, to the next stop, and eventually out of the Philippines. And then they start going through the Dutch East Indies, which today are Indonesia, and then it gets a little bit hairier, right? Yeah. Once they left the Philippines, they, they, they went out about 50 miles to the east of the Philippines to try to get out of any uh, Japanese aircraft lanes. And then they headed south towards Australia. But you're in a 36-foot open boat. It was meant to move sailors around in a harbor. It wasn't meant to be in the ocean. And, and now that when you talk navigation early on, the skipper had a watch and a map. The skipper was a real, he was a Naval Academy graduate to begin with, the class of 24. He was no spring chicken then, but he was a good navigator. 
And we had no navigational instruments either. We had a compass that was on the boat when the boat was built four or five years before we got it. A couple of the guys got together with the skipper and they made a homemade sextant. They used a pair of what they call parallel rulers, kind of hard to describe on a podcast, but they used that to, so they could get an angle from the horizon to the sun with no glass on it, right? So you're looking right into the sun, their eyes are watery. Uh, but that's how they did it. But he was such a great navigator. He was able to hit the mark at 2,000 miles. That's like going from D.C. to Salt Lake City in a 36-foot open boat. Absolutely amazing. And they go through a couple storms, and they're bailing water. At one point, the battery runs out, so they can't start up the boat again, and then they have to figure out how to start it up. They they go through you know, pretty much all the predictable things as you're sailing a 36-foot boat. Um, they run into a little a bit of a hostile port at some point, right? Yeah, there's so there's a couple of things you want me to highlight for you. Absolutely. So the the battery goes dead, and they're on on a habit little speck of an island, and they have to figure out how to get that diesel started. So it's actually a signalman, first class Philip Binkley, who comes up with this idea of how to allow them to spin that shaft in a way that we get the engine started. And to start a diesel engine, you've got to have a you've got to have something that'll turn it over rather quickly. And we messed with it for about two days, couldn't get it started. And finally one day, wrapped some line and rope around a, a coupling between the drive shaft and the engine and got six of us on a yo-yo pole and we turned the engine over and got it started. But when we got it started, let me tell you, we got the hell out of there. And at that time, they've got the bearing, the shaft bearing, wore out so they found some floating wood in the ocean and they carved it and replaced the original bearing with this wood to keep the boat going they were very you know very ingenious they had some great engineers kind of reminds me of the shade tree mechanics of the past that could fix anything so they were able to overcome anything they ran into uh, and they ran into some pretty unique situations what are the other unique situations they ran into well, they went into one uh, one island where the like I think you alluded to it, the the natives were a little hostile to them. You know, they had to deal with them while they can't speak the language. Right? They're always running the people that can't speak the language, and they're trying to exchange food for for something they can exchange. I think the pharmacist mate had exchanged his underwear drawers for some bananas. So language barrier was a big part for them, just trying to get resources once they left the Philippines. To an extent, they were sailing back their time because at this point, yeah, the Europeans had explored and colonized this part of the world, but technology hadn't largely permeated many of these more remote islands. There were no uh, motor boats. They're still going by sail and whatnot, and sometimes far more primitive than sail. And at one point, they, uh, there's a, a description that would not be used today, but uh, Morrill talks about these headhunters and cannibals with bones through their noses. And he thought that the one or two sailors he sent off to try and get some more food with these guys that for sure that they were going to be cooked and whatnot. And, you know, they're sort of running back through time as they go through these increasingly remote islands throughout the Philippines and Indonesia that the war is almost irrelevant because there's no part in this great power industrial conflict. Yeah, you're, you're 100% right. Many natives throughout the Dutch East Indies, they had very little resources. And so when the boat crew would get there, they got a pharmacist mate and 
you know, they've got medicines and stuff. So one thing that Skip was able to do was to, to create relationships with them is have their pharmacist help some of their sick people because they had nothing. Yeah, I, I think your thing back in time is a great a great way to describe what they experienced. They went through those Dutch East Indies. Long story short, they first arrive at this remote island off of the Australian coast, and they go to mainland Australia. And they are in the absolute middle of nowhere, and they're all presumed dead or captured. And they eventually make their way back to Melbourne. And from there, they are given week or two of rest and relaxation, they're all promoted, and then they're sent straight back into the war. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. When they land in Darwin, Australia, the Australians don't believe they're Americans. As Skipper tells them, you know, we escaped from the Philippines. Well, no, nobody escaped from the Philippines. You know, they had no uniforms. They had no paperwork. They had no money. They didn't even have a button showing they were United States sailors. And what happened was a uh, Army Air Force Colonel, Colonel Wurtsmith, is notified. He comes up to him and he's asking him questions and they can't prove they're Americans. So he finally asked Morrill, who won the Army-Navy game last year? And Morrill snaps back, you darn well know who won, Navy won. And Wurtsmith <laughs> tells the Australians, they're Americans, all right, let them go. So how far and how long did they actually travel from the time that they started at Corregidor? It was 31 days and around 2,000 miles. Absolutely amazing. They had you know, no charts, a made-up sextant, and other than that, it was dead reckoning and some amazing navigation skills on Morrill's part. And eventually they end up in Australia, emaciated, starving, uh, looking rather beat up. There's some great photos that you have in the book of uh, some rather beat up looking, unsailor-like looking sailors. And then from there, they're sent back into the war. And, and this is one of the things that is in your edition, which is what they did throughout the rest of the war and then throughout the rest of their careers. Three of the escapees from Corregidor were on a destroyer, which just a couple of months later got sunk again. Yeah, you know, absolutely. So what everybody has to remember when you're, when you're reading the original text of South from Corregidor, the skipper's writing it what September to December of 42. So the war's got almost three years to go. And when you get done with his version of the book, you know, yeah, you ask, well, what happened to these guys? Did they live? Did they survive the war? So what we did with the last escapees, we added an addendum. And yeah, three of them, they were on the destroyer blue. And I think within a couple of months of arriving in um, Australia, that blue was sunk and they all ended up back in the water again. And, the, and then Philip Binkley, he was a signalman. He was on the destroyer Jarvis, and the Jarvis was involved in the Battle of Guadalcanal on August 8th of 1942. It got damaged, and it's heading to go get repaired, and it disappeared, and the Navy did not figure out where it was until 1950. No sailors really? were ever found. The ship was never found. Mm -hmm. Wow, I did not know that. And then a remarkable number of those sailors ended up becoming chief petty officers, which there was no senior and master chief petty officer at the time. And so they basically rose to the pinnacle of their rates, of the enlisted rate in the Navy. A couple of them commissioned, but pretty much all of them had long careers in the Navy. And then a lot of them went on to serve in Korea and a couple in Vietnam, right? It was pretty, pretty unusual that that many would stay in for the rest of their careers, I think. If, yeah, Gunnar Taylor, um, he was the second in command of the escape. He was a uh, warrant officer on the quail. He ended up, uh, after 
arrive in Australia. He goes back to the United States, becomes a pilot, and is flying aircraft in the Korean War during the Incheon landings and gets shot down and ends up in the water. So they had pretty amazing careers. They loved the Navy. And they, they were very tight through their entire lives, uh, these 18 sailors. Did they, they have two reunions? They, they had reunions? Okay. Are there any stories that you got from Lyle about their time or you know his perspective that would be a, a highlight to tell everyone about? The, the biggest thing is actually leading up before the escape. And having a quote for you, if you don't mind, I'd like to read in a second. But before they get to escape, this, the, the skipper's told, hey, your crew has to stay in the tunnels on Corregidor. And they hated it. They hated those tunnels. They wanted to be on their boat where they can maneuver. And if anything happened, they could leave the Philippines like you were talking about earlier when the skipper made sure they always had enough oil and they're ready to go. But the tunnels uh, was really terrible. Lyle City slept on these boxes of cans, like canned corn and stuff. And they slept there and the flies were really bad. I, I think it's important. We talk about the 18 sailors and how they suffered, but all those people on Corregidor and those tunnels, what they had to endure as well. And the quell crew is part of that. This is conditions in the tunnel were miserable. And this is described by Lieutenant Commander Morrill. So these are his words. The piping for the tunnel sewage was impromptu and the humidity made the place like a Turkish bath. The walls were always sweating and damp. The average temperature inside was around 98 degrees. When a bomb landed at the tunnel mouth, the concussion blew dust and trash right through the place from one end to the other. He says, I sent brave men into the place, and after they had been exposed to whatever evil thing the tunnel did to them, they came back to the ship and sat and shivered on her decks, their nerves jangling at finding themselves out in the open again with no rock roof over them. That's what these guys were facing before they even took on the risk of, of trying to escape from the Japanese. That was the life they lived. Pretty, pretty amazing. And under constant Japanese air attack and fending off Japanese patrol boats and ferrying supplies and doing a actually really amazing action in the defense of sort of the last corner of Bataan, the Bataan Peninsula, where they're providing artillery support for the army against the Japanese on this little lookout point that the Japanese had somehow, prior to the war, stashed a bunch of arms and sort of defensive emplacements and were hiding and were using as a forward advance point. And so even before they left, they were doing really amazing things. And then they slowly ran out of ammunition, ran out of fuel, the Japanese kept advancing and advancing and advancing, and then they made their escape. Yeah, they absolutely they knew the brutality of the Japanese. They, they were very well the Bataan Death March. And for those who may not remember or don't know what that was, when the Bataan Peninsula surrendered, there were around 70,000 Filipino and American troops on there. And they were at Force March 65 miles. And during that 65 miles, around 1,500 Filipinos and 500 Americans were killed or they died on the march. But they were brutalized. So that was a month before Brigador surrendered. So the quail sailors were very aware of the brutality they would face if they surrendered. In fact, I have a little bit of statistics for you, Chase. Um, there were around 50 or so quail sailors taken prisoner. And of those, 12 died. So a pretty high number. Yeah. I mean, 25%. That's, yeah, uh, that's a huge number. Uh, it, yeah. It's like a POWs, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Japanese so, were 
extremely brutal to conquered people. In fact, in the research I do on other, other books I'm doing, sometimes brutality is so much, I have to walk away and then come back the next day because it's too much, too much to read and absorb at once. There was uh, one side story to the quail, uh, because I am Coast Guard uh, for 18 years. There was a Lieutenant uh, James Crotty, who is a Coast Guardsman, and he was actually on the quail as an acting executive officer in the Philippines. And what makes him very unique is that he was taken prisoner because he could not escape. He was on Corregidor at the time the escape happened, and the skipper couldn't get anybody off Corregidor. Uh, he died in a few months after being taken prisoner from diphtheria, but he is the only Coast Guardsman to be taken prisoner of war during that century. And a few years ago, they finally identified his remains and they brought him home. So that was kind of a cool connection to the quail and, and just a piece of history for the Coast Guard. Yet another thing that I did not know, it's one of the things about conflicts of this size is there are probably a lot of stories not exactly similar to the quail, but stories of heroism and ingenuity and bravery that never got told because no one wrote the book or the book was lost to time or the journal is lost to time. The publisher didn't want to pick it up because there was a flood of these amazing stories in the immediate aftermath of World War II. And this one, somewhat coincidentally, because they had a happened early in the war and because Lieutenant Commander Morrell was an author that this one got told, but, you know, I have to think that it is, you know, just a drop in the bucket of many amazing and horrifying and interesting and every human emotion story that happened during the vast war. Yeah. Uh, uh, when the skipper commander Morrill was on the Kate Smith show, she's very popular back in the forties. She was in, she interviewed him and a couple of his crewmen. He mentioned that very fact. He goes, we're able to tell our stories, but it represents thousands of stories that may never be told. This is just a little microcosm of what was going on around the world, actually, not just the Pacific. And so, Tim, you mentioned that you were writing other books. What else have you written? What are you working on now? So I just finished it. It's called Defenders of the Rock. It all started when Lyle died. His family sent me his papers. So I have these letters, right? Handwritten letters from the 60s. Admiral's talking about what occurred in the Philippines during the war. So I end up picking 24 people that were on the Philippines, and each one has a chapter. And if you read all 24, you'll get a good sense of what's going on. Some are nurses, some are Marines, some are Navy in there. Some died, some survived, some escaped. It took three years to put together. It was a pretty amazing book. Before we end, there's one other quote I'm going to give you. Uh, I just think it's an important quote. So after the war, I can't have a couple of years after the war, I think, maybe one or two, the skipper receives a letter from a, one of the sailors. Arthur Emard. And uh, Arthur could not escape. He was on Corregidor, so he was taken prisoner. And he, you know, what, three and a half years, he's a prisoner of war. But he did survive and he's, he gets repatriated. So he wrote more a letter. And I wonder if I could just read the first, it's a pretty short paragraph, because I just think it, it tells the whole story of between the luck of being able to escape and then survive that and then being taken prisoner. So here's what Arthur wrote. Hello, Skipper. I have thought of you a great many times since that fateful day of May 6, 1942, and I would have given 20 years of my life to have been able to go with you. But I guess what wasn't meant to be happened, and there wasn't much that could be done about it. 
So here's a young man in his 20s willing to give up 20 years of his life to avoid being a prisoner. That's pretty stunning. Pretty, uh, I, yeah, pretty, pretty horrific was the adjective yes. that I was going to use. Yeah, and the, the bravery of moral and his determination not to be captured, you know, statistically probably saved at least five of their lives and sent them back into the war effort. One died during World War II aboard the Jarvis, as you mentioned, but the rest almost universally, with the exception of a couple of them, had long careers in the Navy, including Morrow himself. Uh, I mentioned he became a rear admiral, and a bunch of them fought in Korea. I think one or two of them fought in Vietnam even, and went on to be part of the war machine that you know, eventually did grind its way back across the Pacific, went to recapture the Philippines, and went on to eventually blockade and bomb and surround Japan itself until the war ended. And then, uh, you know, a couple of them went back to their lives, but most of them, as I mentioned, stayed in the Navy. And uh, I think there was probably something special about that level of camaraderie and the leadership that Morrill exhibited and exerted on them that they all felt that, you know, patriotic desire to stay in when you know, the vast majority of the millions and millions of sailors who served during World War II sort of got out the first opportunity, right? They were all uh, draftees, but uh, you know this group that had volunteered for service prior to World War II um, stayed in knowing that war was coming, fought during the fall of the Philippines against pretty horrific odds, and then again against pretty horrific odds, piled themselves into a small diesel boat that was absolutely not meant to travel 2,000 miles, and then essentially without maps, without navigation equipment, traveled 2,000 miles to Australia, convinced the Australians that yes, they are Americans and then get thrown right back into the war. That's just an amazing journey. Yeah. Well, the couple of things there, I, I, I totally agree with that. I think you hit on a really good point. All the sailors of the quail were volunteers, right? Cause they were in the Philippines before the war started. And you know, they were professional sailors to begin with in a sense, cause they volunteered for the Navy and they were sent to the idyllic uh, Philippines, which didn't really turn out too good for them. And the other thing is, yeah, you think about today, if you were to make an escape like that, 18, no, amazing escape, you'd be brought back to the United States, there'd be parades, all kinds of stuff. But these guys have said, no, you're all going back to war. And a lot of them went right back to ships and started fighting. It's just a totally different world back then. You know, you, you can't imagine that happening today, but, you know, they needed people. They, they took them, they gave them extra rank, and then they went right back to fighting as if nothing happened. Such the demands, and during the first year of World War II in the Pacific Front, there was no slack for 18 sailors to go do parades. It was an all-hands-on-deck sort of evolution. We were losing and losing badly until Midway, and even after Midway, it wasn't a cut-and-dry thing. It took you know, a couple more major battles before the, the writing was on the wall, so to speak. I don't think that there was any national capacity to not have every single resource available pushing on the front because the Japanese did a phenomenal job with relatively limited resources at kicking our butts during the opening phase of World War II in the Pacific. So thank you, Tim. I did want to thank you again for coming. Uh, as Tim mentioned, he has uh, two books. This is the republished version of South from Corregidor. There is a public domain version as well, but this one has uh, some more maps and uh, has sort of the addendums of what happened to the 18 sailors aboard the uh, Quail's launch. And the second book is Defenders of the Rock, which is that story of the various sailors and soldiers and nurses and people on Corregidor sort of painting a personalized 
portrait of it. Uh, so if you're interested in Corregidor in the fall and the Philippine War, please uh, go ahead and order that wherever books are sold. I will put a link in the show description. And uh, thank you again, Tim. It's been a, a real honor. Well, thank you, Chase. And thank you for preserving our history. I mean, it's very important. And I appreciate that. Well, thank you very much uh, for listening. For those of you who have not heard the U.S. Naval History podcast before, my first 19 episodes walk chronologically through U.S. Naval History. You can go ahead and listen to those starting at the Revolutionary War and ending essentially at the modern day in the post-Cold War. More recently, I've been talking about the South China Sea and some more geopolitical elements. Now I'm going back and telling some vignettes throughout history, such as South from Corregidor, the escape of 18 sailors from Corregidor all the way to Australia during World War II. I've got a couple of uh, great episodes coming up. And so if you have not already, please subscribe uh, so you can get the next episode in your sleep. Give me a good rating if you enjoyed it. Don't give me a bad rating if you didn't enjoy it. And you can always email me at usnavalhistorypodcast at gmail.com. I answer every single email that I get. Thank you very much. And until next time, fair winds and following seas. Ba ba ya